Welcome to A Voice from the Hills. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas. Our special guest on today's podcast is Shana orksik Sissel. Shana is the Director of Investments for Cope Corrales in D.C. She's also a frequent guest on CNBC, Bloomberg, and the Fox Business Network. On her second day in the investment world, Shana found herself on the 64th floor of Tower 2 in the World Trade Center on, you guessed it, September 11th. Shana is definitely a survivor and truly a motivating and inspirational figure in our business. But our focus for today's podcast is really on her skill and expertise in developing and allocating investment portfolios during difficult environments. And we're going to turn that to a special focus on her work in the alternative investment space. Shane is a chartered alternative investment analyst and has spent a large portion of her career doing due diligence on managers and strategies within the space. As the environment for the traditional 60-40 portfolio becomes ever more challenging, the incorporation of alternative investments into a traditional portfolio becomes paramount for investors seeking some form of risk management along with growth. There's no better professional to walk us through the alternative space than Shana. So please join me in welcoming Shana Orksik Sissel. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management and the host of A Voice from the Hills podcast. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and his guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Good afternoon, Shana, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I've always wanted to have you on the podcast, but especially given the current market conditions. But before we get into and start talking about investments, let's let's talk a little bit about you. Share with our audience your background and kind of your career arc. How long do we got? Oh, we got plenty of time. Yeah, it's a long story. So so I want to make sure you know, I uh, don't take up the whole podcast with my boring life story. Um, I'm happy to tell you, like, where would you like me to start? Well, let's start, uh, let's start 2001. How about that? All right. Uh, so after graduating from uh, my undergrad at UMass Amherst, I, uh, I took a job at a staffing agency. I actually have an undergraduate degree in sport management, and I really thought I was going to work in the sports industry. I wanted to be a sideline reporter for ESPN uh, and had done an internship at the New England Sports Network um, at a time where Kara Henderson and Wendy Nix were the primary um, uh, faces of Nesson at the time and uh, took a job at a staffing agency because there weren't a ton of opportunities uh, for uh, for me to be doing sideline reporting uh, in the Boston area. Um, and I was kind of tied there uh, because of a boy um, and eventually ended up going and interviewing undercover at Morgan Stanley to be a financial advisor because the staffing agency had been hired by Morgan Stanley to find financial advisors. And we had sent probably 20 people and hadn't had any luck. So they asked me to go undercover to see if I could figure out what they were looking for. And I actually was offered the job. So that was how I got into the world. So you did figure it out. (laughs) Yeah, Apparently uh, I interviewed well uh, and they offered me a whopping $31,000, $32,000. And at the time that was a huge pay increase for me, uh, based on, uh, 
what I was making at the staffing agency. Um, I didn't really think I was going to be pursuing a career in finance at the time. I just thought, well, this will allow me to move out of my parents' house. <laughs> and so I uh, took the job and ended up falling in love with the market. So fast forward, I decided to leave Morgan Stanley because um, as much as I enjoyed the markets, I didn't so much love being a financial advisor in that, in that setting. Uh, so I went and got my MBA from Bentley University and then took a job at Fidelity Investments on their sales desk because despite the fact that I didn't really want to be in sales, it was the only thing I knew how to do. So I figured I'd get my foot in the door at a larger organization and then kind of find a way to get into a more analytical role, which is pretty much what I did. Um, eventually left Fidelity to join Russell Investments and work on a hedge fund to fund. And that's what introduced me to the alternatives world. Um, and from then on, I've had a number of different stops. I worked for a small REA in Waltham uh, where I got into uh, media there. Um, we can talk about that if, if you want to go there at some point. Uh, worked at Mercer Investments, um, helped launch an emerging market mutual fund um, and helped manage an international equity fund for their outsourced CIO platform. Moved on to Fidelity Investment Strategic Advisors, similar role, but focusing more on U.S. equity and value in particular. Um, and then, you know, the roles just keep coming. I uh, worked at Aerial yeah. Investments, Orion. Uh, I was CIO of a firm called Spotlight. Did some consulting for a little bit. Uh, helped launch an ETF called House. And uh, finally landed where I am today, Cope Corrales as Director of Investments there uh, in March of this year. So that is the... Um, Cliff Notes version of my career. All right, so let's let's go back to 2001. So you're uh -huh. you're on day two of your uh, of your class uh, of your new class orientation at Morgan Stanley, right? And you happen yes. to be on yeah. what the 64th floor of Tower Two. Yes, in so the World Trade that Center. Is, that is, uh, I kind of skipped over that, didn't I? It's kind of kind of an impactful event. Yes. Yeah, so Morgan Stanley at the time used to bring in classes of advisors. I'm sure some of the listeners out there might know this, but a lot of the large um, broker dealers, the Morgan Stanley's, the Merrill Lynch's of the world, Smith Barney's um, back in the day, um, would bring in advisors in monthly classes. So they would all start on the same time. And then they basically rank you and like call the herd uh, every six Constantly call the herd, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, you'd start off with like 350 people. And then by two years later, you'd have like 50 people left in the class. Um, so, and Tower Two was basically Morgan Stanley's tower at, that, at so that time, right? Morgan Stanley had most of the top. Um, I think it was like fifty and above there. Um, right. So Morgan Stanley was the second largest tenant at the World Trade Center, and they had sent us there to do our training. So it was the second day I was there. Um, Phil Roth had just finished speaking about um, bonds or technical analysis. Can't remember at this point. Uh, so we had a little break, and I was uh, kind of sitting there on the 64th floor of Tower 2. Um, and uh, we all know that uh, that was a pretty uh, impactful day uh, if you were in the World Trade Center on 9-11 of 2001. Uh, and it very much was for me. Um, and so I, I know you're fairly insulated. You, you probably didn't even hear the, the plane hit Tower 1, right? I mean, that... Well, we were in 64. It hit in the 90s. Uh, and, uh, while I, 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 didn't hear it, we did see debris. Um, we did see things falling from the sky. I've, I've told this story before. I do recall a wall street, uh, not a wall street, a USA today 
it was on fire flying by the window as I was looking at it. So these are little things, but, but we weren't entirely sure what was happening. As many people might know, there's a famous documentary that the History Channel runs annually on the anniversary of 9-11 about a gentleman named Rick Rascola. The name of the um, documentary oh, yeah. is The Man Who Predicted 9-11. So because Rick was- He was, Rascola, Rick was with Morgan Stanley, right? Yeah, he was the head of security for Morgan Stanley. And because of some of the work that Rick did um, after Tower One was hit, uh, Morgan Stanley insisted- even though the building did not, that we all evacuate. So Morgan Stanley lost six employees that day, which is, you know, quite remarkable if you think about it, because they were the second largest tenant in the World Trade Center complex. Um, was, he was one of them, wasn't he? And he? It was him and his security team. Um, yeah. They went back up to help other folks that weren't Morgan Stanley employees get out of the building. And, and so he and five of his employees that worked directly for him were the people who uh, perished, uh, the only people who perished from Morgan Stanley that day. So, so you're hearing the intercom saying, you know, don't worry, you know, go back yeah. to your desk. Yes. that's And exactly. the Morgan Stanley people are saying, you know, get the hell out of here. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the, the actual second plane hit right on your floor, didn't it? It did, but thankfully we had been evacuated. So uh, oh it, it did go through basically the floor I was on. Um, and so uh, very fortunate to have had Rick there that day, insisting everybody leave. Gosh, you know, I, without him. I was, I was, I wasn't in the office that day, but my, my son had been born uh, four days earlier mm-hmm. and we normally had a, I normally had two conference calls on that day. One with Cantor Fitzgerald mm-hmm. uh, on the bond side. And of course, you know what happened with, with, yeah. I mean, cause they were, I think they were 107th floor of tower one. I mean, they yeah. were just in, yeah, just they a, had no way of getting out at that point. Yeah. And then David Alger, mm-hmm. uh, who was with Alger funds and David was just, I mean, you, you couldn't, you couldn't find a nicer guy. Uh, those, those were the two that just kind of, you know, you never really at that time, you, it wasn't like today where you, you know, where you feel like, you know, somebody, even if you haven't met them, I mean, it right. was, it was a little different, but, but still it was, uh, I did, uh, uh, I did know somebody who was on uh, flight 11, my um, senior leader in high school um, was on that flight. Um, oh my goodness. And so she unfortunately lost her life that day. Um, you know, it's interesting to talk about my life story. And if you take out the finance part, the one thing that is a constant reoccurring theme is, um, been exposed to traumatic events consistently throughout my life. My dad was a police officer and he was a um, corpsman in Vietnam. So he um, worked in the morgue uh, when he uh, was in the Navy. He, he assisted on um, autopsies on the Naval Hospital in Newport for, um, for some time uh, after Vietnam. Um, and then he became a police officer. And my dad never shies away from, you know, horrific events. So as a child, if there was a car accident or some sort of accident or injury, uh, and we drove by it, we would always pull over and my dad would always get out and help. Um, I had been to an event when I was about seven, a Polish, um, festival in Worcester, Mass, which is where I'm from, um, with my grandparents. My dad happened to be one of the police officers working the event and a gentleman went to cardiac arrest in front of me. Um, my my dad, you know, tried to, resuscitate him. And unfortunately he wasn't unable to, um, you know, we've, um, 
we've had multiple situations in my family um, where my dad had to be part of very traumatic events. My brother-in-law's partner's son had an incident with a gun uh, a couple of years ago. He was, I believe, 12. He found um, his father's service weapon and uh, accidentally shot himself in the face. Uh, oh, my and, goodness. And so uh, my life is full of a lot of trauma. Um, for better or worse, it's hardened me and made me, you know, resilient uh, to handle pretty much anything life throws well, my way. And, and then you, you kind of found yourself, I, I, I guess you were a couple blocks away from the finish line at the Boston Marathon when the- Yeah, uh, it was lunchtime uh, and I was working at Fidelity at the time. I'd walked to grab some lunch and I was in the downtown crossing area. So I was only a couple blocks away when that happened. Um, and my brother-in-law was involved in the um, Waltham, uh, not the Waltham, the Watertown uh, standoff uh, because he is the head of SWAT for and he, tra- he, he was a trainer for uh, Massachusetts um, Police Academy um, and, and helps with that. So he was there. Um, that was an interesting event that, and to some extent, wasn't as traumatic because I, I, I'd been in that situation before. So I felt more of a need to like help others who were dealing with trauma for the first time. Um, yeah, so um, lots of traumatic events Uh yeah, well, no. Been part of my life uh, <laughs> through the years, uh, but I look at it as uh, I uh, guess. Well, I guess market market trauma kind of takes a real back seat to stuff like yeah, that. But let, so let, let's tra- let's transition to some easier trauma and talk about yeah, the market. Let's, so let's, let's, let's talk let's, about let's do things. that. So we got supply chain issues. We got inflation. We got zero COVID policies in Asia. We've got the Fed that's looking to raise rates and kind of unwind their quantitative easing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, how do you? Uh, you know, how and when should advisor or should investors be allocated their capital in this environment? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I'm, I'm sitting here in my hotel room uh, at the uh, Inside ETFs conference in Hollywood, Florida right now, and uh, sat on a panel earlier today talking about portfolio construction, asset allocation, and, and sort of how you should be positioning in this environment. And I would argue that five years ago, um, kind of what maybe not the supply chain stuff because the pandemic wasn't necessarily a, something that you could see coming, but the inflation, the fed intervention in the markets um, to some extent was, was a predictable outcome was going to be high inflation in an environment where bonds and stocks would both be on, um, doing poorly at the same time. Cause you knew the fed was going to have to raise rates, which, would be a headwind for stocks and also a headwind for bonds. So at the time, I started talking about the importance of using alternatives in portfolios, looking at ways to further diversify across stocks and bonds, and talking about just the proliferation um, and the growth of this liquid alt segment, um, which became really something that developed after the SEC changed some of their rules uh, that allowed for hedge fund-like strategies to be implemented in mutual fund and ETF forms. So right now, um, I I really think that advisors and clients need to think about portfolios beyond what has been traditionally comfortable, which is stocks and bonds, and think about what is a little bit uncomfortable to people because it's a little more complex, which is using these uncorrelated asset classes as a way to manage risk. Um, and now is the type of market where they really are making a huge difference because 
stocks and bonds aren't working, cash isn't a great place to be because inflation's so high, you're not going to keep up. And you have to think about ultimately the market and equities are the place you want to have the majority of your assets over the long term because that's where you'll get your return. But how do you manage the risk in that area right now? And I would argue that using these types of vehicles and these types of um, strategies make a lot of sense because they continue to allow you to have the exposure that you need for long-term growth in your portfolio, uh, but they help you manage the risk, especially at critical times like today. So so let's talk about alternatives. It's kind of hard to define what they are, maybe easier to find what they're not. Uh, my line. But let's let's define alternatives and discuss what you know, what their place is inside a diversified portfolio. So I, as you said, uh, it's easier to define what they're not than what they are. Basically, alternatives are anything that isn't um, long-only equity, long-only stocks, or long-only bonds. Um, so that can be a lot of things. That can be, um, you know, hedge fund-like strategies, long-short, market-neutral, um, global macro, uh, it can be managed futures and commodity type strategies. Um, it can be private equity, um, although I would argue that some of the alternatives that can be uncorrelated like private equity and private debt aren't available to the average investor because they really can't be implemented in um, uh, a form that can be broadly available to the public. So those kind of have to be in um, private funds, uh, which have limited access, um, just due to regulatory, um, uh, regulatory, um, uh, rules. Uh, so it's a lot of different things, you know, you'll notice I didn't say real estate because unless we're talking private real estate, it's not a diversifier. REITs are equities. They trade in traditional markets and then hence they trade like equities. Um, so I don't consider REITs alternatives. I do consider private real estate and physical real estate an alternative. Um, and I would throw crypto in there as well. Um, crypto to me is an alternative. It's an uncorrelated asset class. Gold, physical um, commodities also fall into that bucket as well. And the one thing they all have in common is that they do not have uh, returns that... Um, that mirror or correlate well with equity and fixed income. They can do well even when those things are doing poorly. And sometimes they do well even when those things are doing well. Uh, the, the key is um, to provide diversification by having that uncorrelated return stream uh, to manage risk in your portfolio. And do you think that systematically these types of assets tend to do better in an inflationary environment? Or I, I guess if we're comparing them to a traditional you know, high credit bond portfolio. I mean, I know if interest rates are going up that my, that my bond portfolio is going to lose value. It, uh, it depends. I mean, it really depends. Um, do they do well in high inflation environments? Yeah, physical commodities do. Managed futures do. Uh, absolutely. Um, they aren't necessarily something that you would expect to do well in a high inflation environment um, per se. Um, I, I wouldn't say they're necessarily correlated to inflation with the exception of those commodities. Um, they can do well, but there are other factors that play along. For example, a market neutral strategy will do well if volatility is high. Uh, same thing with long short. Global macro really needs some sort of trend following aspect to it. Uh, crypto has 
uh, you know, its own set of rules. Uh, they tend to be a risk asset. So when risk is on and you have some speculation in the market, they tend to do really, really well. Um, they can really juice your portfolio even with only like a 1% allocation. Um, so they all play a different role. And I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, they do really well in an inflation environment. What they do is they do really well um, under certain circumstances. And right now, the circumstance we're currently in, which isn't just high inflation, but it's rising rates and slowing economic growth, those three things uh, bode well for these types of products. And, and then if you were to compare, you know, kind of that, the traditional 60-40 portfolio that might have been in vogue and, and, and actually something you could put into practice uh, 10 or 12 years ago, mm-hmm. if, if somebody's, you know, they're entering retirement. Uh, they've they've got a nest egg that's sufficient enough to cover their retirement. Mm-hmm. They would traditionally go into that sixty forty kind of portfolio setting. What do they have to do today? I kind of consider it like the evolution of the sixty forty. So I can tell you what we do, and this is what I suggest. Um, I look at a portfolio, and if I have a client come in and has a million dollars, let's say in the scenario you're talking about, and we're going to put them in a 60-40 kind of portfolio. We're going to take 800000 and we're going to put that in a very traditional 60-40. Like, I'm not going to do the math in my head. <laughs> That's what we do. Um, and then we take the remaining 200000 and we put that in our alt portfolio. So it's kind of a core satellite approach. But um, one of the reasons why we do it that way, and I explain it that way, is because we don't take, we don't have this conversation of where do I take my 20% of do I take it from equity or do I take it from fixed income? I take it from both. And the easiest way to do that is to just say, if you have a million dollars with us, 20% is going in alternatives. And then the remaining will go into what would have been considered the traditional 60-40 of 60% stocks, 40% bonds. What it ends up being is something like 52.5% equity uh, and um, 25 Thirty percent uh, fixed income, and then uh, and then the remaining ends up being split in alternatives. I like to do a diversified mix of alternatives. Right now, it's a five 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 um, five twenty percent. Uh, I don't attempt to like tactically weight those the way I might do in an equity or fixed income portfolio. But the key is to choose four alternative products that are uncorrelated with each other. Uh, as well as with traditional markets. So there's a number of ways you can do that. Um, it helps if you understand or if you have a background in hedge funds because you know all the different types of strategies that can be implemented. What they all have in common is they all hedge something um, in some way uh, because they can all go short. And so um, unfortunately, there's not really good resources for the average person to go and look for liquid alts because they right. don't really categorize well. You know, anybody who's ever used Morningstar to try to find a liquid alt. Um, now, oh, to good luck. credit, they have developed categories uh, that would traditionally be liquid alt. Problem is, um, they, they still don't really do a good job defining it. I joke that uh, I was looking for a global macro fund. And for anybody who doesn't know, global macro is is a very common strategy that's been used for hedge, with hedge funds for years essentially what they do is look at these big macroeconomic trends and they, they attempt to use a wide variety of financial instruments to take advantage of trends uh, by going long and short. And they'll use currencies, commodities, futures, stocks, bonds, whatever, 
to gain that exposure. Um, and they tend to do really well in markets like today. They crushed it and uh, during the financial crisis and they're crushing it right now. Um, but if you try to go find a global macro fund in Morningstar right now, like you could look under macro. They have a macro category. But you'll also find global macro strategies in tactical allocation and global allocation. You will find them in options trading, uh, options-based uh, strategies. Uh, that's a, another one that they call multi-strat. We'll have some global macro in there. Um, so it's not like you can just go to the macro category and find macro funds. Um, because I can name you uh, a bunch of different, like the Chiron um, allocation fund, that's what it's called, um, is in the uh, world or global allocation category. Yeah, like global or world allocation. Much, it is very much a global macro fund. The Ivy um, strategy, um, I'm trying to, Ivy macro strategy fund is very famous, one of the first global macro mutual funds that ever existed. I believe that one is in the tactical allocation uh, bucket. It's not in global macro. So um, it doesn't make it easy for the average person to try to find these strategies. You kind of have to know the landscape and then kind of know what you're looking for, unfortunately. Um, well, I think even for the smaller advisory firm who, who realizes that, you know, if the 60-40 portfolio isn't dead, it's, it, it's, it's certainly- It's on life support. It, it's certainly in, in, in waiting for a more favorable interest rate environment or scenario to, to be more, more effective. Mm -hmm. uh, your background is in analyzing you know, different managers and different alternative strategies and, and, and deciding what, you know, what due diligence needs to be you know, undertaken there and how do you compare those two. How would you- how would you talk to the, uh, you know, the registered investment advisor with a fairly small book of business, maybe it's a hundred million mm -hmm. uh, and they've got a lot of 60, 40 candidates in their, you know, in their mix. And they realize that, you know, some sort of alternative exposure really is going to be necessary for them to, you know, to manage risk into the future so that they can maximize their equity allocation. Uh, how would you, how would you, have them get started? How would they do the due diligence? Uh, I, I have to say it's difficult. And um, in the alternative space, I recommend working with somebody who uh, has expertise. Now, sometimes you can have that inside your firm. Um, you know, obviously I'm somebody who's worked for several firms and I have quite a bit of expertise here. Um, but ultimately, I think this is a place where you do actually want to reach out to model providers. Uh, and there are several out there that do um, alternative models uh, that do the work for you. And they all have a different approach. Um, Corey Hofstein's um, firm does a great job with this. Uh, John Davy Astoria Advisors is another one um, that does great work uh, and has some alts product. Wisdom Tree has some alts products, but you almost have to work with a firm like that because there are idiosyncrasies uh, here. Um, a perfect example of this, and I'm not going to call out the firm because I think it's inappropriate, but I, I do think it's important to kind of point these things out. Um, for example, there are products on the market today, um, buffer products, um, tail risk products, uh, options-based strategies that uh, purport to provide downside protection if the markets go awry. 
there's one very large one, um, well-known tail risk product that um, has marketed itself as a risk hedge and risk management. That product is specifically designed and has marketed itself as a hedge in, in case the markets blow up. Um, well, that product is down the same as the markets right now. Um, so these strategies, you don't, you need to know more than what the marketing team is telling you. You really have to understand how these strategies work under certain stress situations. Um, it's critical because there's a million different ways to implement option-based hedge strategies. And if the way you're doing that is writing leaps, uh, but you have to provide treasuries as your collateral for your leaps and, uh, the treasuries are going down just as much, then it's not much protection. And the same thing with buffer products. Um, these buffer products are at their core, uh, an options contract and a treasury that's, um, that's paired with it to, um, to meet a certain yield requirement. Um, and uh, there are going to be situations like the one we're in now where the treasury that you've paired in here and the option uh, that you have are not behaving in the way that you would necessarily expect. And so they, they can't necessarily provide the buffer that they promise. Um, and so it does take some expertise in understanding these complexities of these underlying strategies to be able to, uh, to really pick the right ones. And yeah, I, I, I think, think for, for the most part, I think it's really hard for the average person to understand the, the concept of the decaying value of an option. Absolutely. I, I think they just don't get it. Uh, Knowing your Greeks, I, is, even I get confused by the Greeks. If somebody starts talking about Vega uh, and uh, Theta and um, you've lost me. Uh, and I understand options pretty well. And I understand how these option-based strategies happen, but it's, it is very complex. And I do think this is an area where it, it helps to have a partner that you can work with that has expertise. And, and there's lots of different strategies that, that pretend to be market neutral. I, I, I see that name listed, you know, in many different, yep. you know, facets, and that can right? Mean a bunch of things. Uh, and so, you know, to me, at, at the worst case scenario, market neutral means I, I do a lot of you know crazy things and end up earning zero. Right. Uh, but what do you look for when you see a market neutral rate of uh, market neutral fund? What do you kind of look at and go, okay, well, how do I how do I compare this market neutral fund with another market neutral fund? Or because the name doesn't necessarily pretend what it actually does. So the goal of a market neutral fund is quite frankly, at its foundation to have equal amounts of long and short exposure so that your beta is zero. So that means you should have exactly the same amount of long exposure as you have short exposure. And where that that is just the basics. But where it gets more complex is what are you long and short, right? Because that matters. And in a market neutral strategy, you don't need either side to be positive. You just need the side that you are long to be to be more, more positive than the other side to be down less than the other side because then you're right. net positive so if you're long a stock that's down one percent and you're short a stock that's down three percent then you're up two that's just how it works that's basic you know that's probably making it overly simplistic but yeah there are market neutral strategies that um 
will perform very differently at different times. So I think anybody who's seen me speak knows that I talk about a specific fund called um, uh, the AGFIQ US Market Neutral Anti-Beta Fund a lot. It's my favorite market neutral fund. The reason I like it is because um, if you believe that low volatility stocks, and there's some research here that supports this, will outperform high volatility stocks most of the time, then a strategy like BTAL will do really well, uh, with the exception of those periods of time where that relationship doesn't work. Uh, because BTAL um, goes long stocks that have low beta and low volatility and shorts high beta, high volatility stocks. And so as long as low volatility is doing well and high volatility is doing poorly, um, this, the fund will do really well. So for example, um, it tends to do well when markets decline heavily because high beta stocks do worse, uh, even if the low beta stocks are also down. It also does well in periods like 2018 and 19, uh, where you had oil and energy stocks, which were super high beta, really doing poorly compared to tech stocks, which ironically enough, were the low beta. Were the low beta then, yeah. Were sure. the low beta names back then. Um and so it did really well in 18, 19. It did well into 2020. And then in June 2020, you saw, maybe it wasn't June 2020. It was um, June 2020. Yeah, it was June 2020. It was right after COVID. I know exactly Yeah, but there was a point it. in time where the relationship between growth and value changed. And you started to see small caps and energy stocks start to rotate and outperform. And when that happened, the fund got killed. Um, but then... <laughs> The relationship between what stocks were high beta and low beta also changed after about six months. And now, even though energy stocks are still outperforming, they now have lower beta than the tech stocks. And so now VTOL is actually doing quite well. I think last I checked and it's been a day or two, it was up like 15%. But the market's also super volatile. So that's helped as well. So there will be periods of time it doesn't do well. So when you look at a market neutral fund, you want to understand what it is they're buying and what it is they're selling, uh, going long and short, and then understanding and figuring out if you think that that relationship, if the stuff that they're buying will do better than the stuff that they're selling. Um, and there's so many different ways to implement that. You could do it. And, like, and also how it relates to the the equity portfolio that you bring to the table as well, right? So exactly. well, mean, if, you, if you bring to the always- table an equity portfolio with a lot of high beta names, mm-hmm then something like this might, you know, might have much better correlation coefficient. It might, might have a much better hedging. Uh, it might provide a much better hedging environment for, you know, a portfolio of, of high beta, high growth names than it would for, you know, low beta value names. Right. So exactly. you have to kind of know what it is you're bringing to the, to the party before you, before you pick your hedge. Right. Yeah. And, and, there are other ways to implement market neutral. Sometimes it'll be based on valuation. There is a fund out there that's market neutral valuation. So short, high PE stocks and long, low PE stocks. Uh, that didn't work really well for a long time uh, when you had tech outperforming. So for example, BTAL did well in 1819. A strategy that was market neutral based on valuation would have done completely horrible, yet they're both market neutral. They just have to understand how the strategy is being implemented. And really, that is the difficulty of doing these 
alternatives, whether it be in a hedge fund, an interval fund, a liquid alternative fund. When you're dealing with these types of very um, different implementations of investment strategies, when you're doing any sort of hedge strategy, how you're doing it and how you're implementing it really matters. Not every market neutral fund is alike. Not every long short fund is alike. You know, you could be long short. It just like not all equity funds are alike. Value, growth, small cap, mid cap. You have to understand the underlying way that they're implementing those strategies to determine whether or not it will outperform. So it's not as easy as just going and looking at all the market neutral funds and figuring out which one's five star and had the best track record the last three years, because what worked three years ago in a market neutral strategy might not work today. That's right. It's got to, it's got to fit with what you have as well, because you, mm-hmm. you, you don't want to hedge. If you end up hedging the wrong thing, you don't even have a hedge. You just have right. more, more of the same, right? Yes. And Let, let's talk about, let's talk that. about managed futures. Cause that, that's a, that's, that's certainly one. a strategy that's done well, at least lately. Yes. Uh, how would you, how would you define a managed future strategy to the audience? And how would you go about comparing two different uh, managed future structures or two different managed futures investments between one another? So managed futures are literally what it is. It says it is. Futures contracts are derivatives uh, where you're looking at exposure of any asset. Um, you can do it on the S&P. You can do it on you know, commodities. You can do it on fixed income. You can buy futures contracts for all of those things where basically you're buying um, – the future value and you're gaining exposure to something um, for a notion, notional amount of money, um, like any derivative. Um, managed futures products are most often used in commodity space. So most managed future products that you see there are using commodity futures, which is really the only way to gain exposure to um, direct directly to commodities, not the equity um the, the companies, the stocks of companies that not the it. operating company that yeah, actually. Yeah, so if you want to, if you want to have exposure to oil, you're not buying the spot contract because you're not going to take delivery of oil anytime soon. Um, <laughs> well, in Texas, buy, sometimes maybe. in Texas there are a couple of people who think they can, but other than that, yeah, you're right. But then when people talk about like what oil's doing and and what you know corn is doing and what you know pork is doing. They're talking about future contracts. They're not talking about like the actual underlying commodity Um, because futures contracts are the way you gain that exposure. So most managed future strategies are um, giving you exposure to commodities. Right now, they're doing really well because it's very high inflation environment. And then you have supply chain as well as weather disruptions that are affecting your ability to um, just from a supply demand standpoint, that's such a huge component of commodities in general. So managed futures are using futures contracts to gain that exposure and then using trend following usually. Some use other methods, but trend following is the most common uh, to take advantage of supply demand dynamics in certain commodity markets or all commodity markets. So the strategy we use right now uh, is actually only long and does trend following across all the major uh, commodity buckets. So that's um, metals, that's um, oil and gas, that's agricultural commodities, it's gold, silver, that kind of thing as well. Um, so 
uh, it's done really, really well because we're in a super high inflation environment. There's a lot of um, disruption on the supply chain for these things. Um, and uh, so prices have gone up. Uh, managed futures contracts and managed futures strategies really take advantage of that. Um, and they can also, like like we just talked about, be implemented in a variety of different ways. So how you gain exposure to managed futures matters. They are managed by what are called commodity trade um, CTAs, um, commodity trade uh, advisors. Um, advisors, yeah. So um, they are specific registration. They have uh, their own regulatory function. Um, and managed futures products uh, are always managed by CTAs. So sometimes you'll hear people refer to it as a CTA fund and not a managed futures fund. They're interchangeable terms for the same thing. Yeah. And then in, in terms of location of the assets, uh, I'm, I'm sure that in some cases having it in a, uh, in a qualified or tax deferred environment, you know, because of the, the taxable nature and the frequent rebalancing that might have to occur in alts, um, do you see people doing that? Do you see people maintaining a household level of the 20% alts, but actually moving the alts or allocating a heavier percentage of the alts to their uh, qualified plans or their tax deferred plans? Or do you see them just allocating it uh, irrespective of tax location? Um, I would say I see it mostly irrespective of tax location for two reasons. Um, you can do this in ETFs. And so then the tax... Um, the taxable in- impact is only on the buy and sell sale of the ETF itself. Um, and you can buy it in mutual funds, which again, um, many of them are managed in a way to try to make them more tax efficient. Um, and you can, some of these products have embedded capital losses for years of not doing nearly as well as the market uh, that uh, can be taken advantage of. So, you know, these products, uh, are not necessarily um, not necessarily tax inefficient. That's the word I was looking for. Um, per se, um, it gets a little more complicated if you start talking about going in a private fund or an interval fund where you're get, talking about K ones, and it gets way more complex. Um, but in a traditional forty act product like an ETF or mutual fund, uh, I would argue that there aren't any. Uh, more or less tax inefficient than any other product in that. And if you do it in an ETF, then you're really looking at um, the taxable event only happening on the buy and sale of the ETF and not any of the underlying activity that happens in the management of the fund. Yeah. Well, and certainly a taxable bond is not exactly the most, you know, tax efficient instrument known to man either. So. And I would argue sometimes, sometimes if, if you're that concerned about taxes, uh, then you might take a different approach to your portfolio construction. But I would argue that these uh, types of products play a role um, and um, are not going to like inherently be less um, tax efficient for your portfolio. And in fact, they're going to manage your risk in a way that could probably even out the overall taxable events in your portfolio in a lot of ways. Um, the bigger concern with these products is expenses. Uh, that comes up a lot more than tax. Yeah. The, it's the expenses and it's being able to understand that just because something has the same name doesn't mean it's the same. Yeah. Concept. People, I think, pay a lot of attention to the expense ratios for these products. And there's two really important things that I like to remind people of because I think it's important when you have this conversation. Number one, 
Um, anytime you're shorting anything or playing in the space of derivatives, um, you're talking about having to use leverage to some extent, um, which requires margin, which requires um, a cost. Uh, there's an interest rate <laughs> that um, that's involved. Uh, so that inherently makes these strategies slightly more expensive to, to do and to implement. The second thing, which is probably not as well known, is that the SEC and the regulators actually <laughs> require um, that the calculation of the expense ratio not include rebates, which is actually an important part of these strategies because there's rebate on margin and there's rebate on um, a, no a number of different uh, aspects of shorting, uh, meaning that the expense of the short, you know, you get the rebate for the dividend, um, uh, you have to pay the dividend, these types of things um, are components uh, that help uh, manage the cost, but the SEC does not allow for the rebates to be calculated as part of the cost of the fund. So the expense ratio that you see is actually not reflective of the actual cost of the strategy, and there's no way around it. Um, this is how it's required to be calculated. It is not actually a proper calculation for the cost of implementation of the strategy. It will always look more expensive. Um, but Unless you know that, um, you're going to look at something with a 2% expense ratio and think that it's really 2%, but in actuality, it's probably never 2%. Uh, it's just they're not allowed to calculate the rebate. Yeah, they just treat the expenses as permanent and the rebates as temporary. And, yes, yeah. and so it's never included in the calculation of the expense ratio, but the rebates is part of the strategy implementation and it will have, and they will, it's not like they will never be there. Uh, the amount may change from time to time, but uh, they are always part of the strategy. And quite frankly, I think should be reflected in the expense ratio. I think the regulators would argue that because it's super volatile and inconsistent and in how much that rebate will be um, month to month or year to year, um, it makes the expense ratio much more um, volatile in its calculation. So they just don't allow it. And so all these uh, strategies look super expensive when in actuality they really aren't. And so I think we're both on the same page on alternatives. We, we definitely need them and, and you need to, you know, take a lot of care in evaluating what the specific alternative is, how that allocation is and, and actually what you're trying to hedge, what you're, what kind of portfolio you're bringing into it. Let's talk about the other part of the portfolio. Let's talk about the equities. Uh, we, we talked about all the challenges in the market. Well, not all of them. We didn't talk about geopolitical, you know, concerns, which are obviously there. We did. Uh, I we, always we joke, though, the geopolitical stuff, you can be concerned about that. But if the worst case scenario on the geopolitical front happens ever, like the last thing you need to worry about is what your stocks are doing. Yeah, then we're all fighting for a, you know, we're all, we're all for a chicken in the middle of the street. Yeah, so. yeah, like, that's, that's a scenario where like it really doesn't matter. Yeah. My grandmother always told me never, never, uh, never plan for the end of the world because it's only going to happen once. Yeah. So, and, and it doesn't matter how your portfolio is uh, uh, allocated at that point. <laughs> it'll, it'll be like that USA Today that's kind of uh, flying in front of the, yeah, uh, in front of the window in Tower 2, right? It won't, won't have much meaning. But let, let's assume the worst case doesn't happen. Uh, we've got uh, equity portfolios. We've obviously had a, a drawdown in you know, in equities, we've had a correction on the equity markets. Mm -hmm. um, where do you think we are? Is is now a, 
are we approaching fair value? Are we, are we still above fair value? Where, where, where do you think we're at? So the general rule of thumb, and this is such an easy way to think about it. Um, I like to just start with the rule of 20, right? So for anyone who's not familiar with the rule of 20, super basic calculation you can do in your head to just start this process. And the rule of 20 says you look at the PE of your market and then you add inflation. And if it's over 20, it's overvalued. And if it's under 20, it's undervalued. And it's super easy. Um, On average, the market sits around 20. Uh, So right now, even though we've seen a correction in the markets, we're still sitting at an S&P PE of probably like 19, 20, I think, on a forward-looking basis. And then when you add in inflation, which is at, let's say, 7, you're at 27. So I would argue that the markets are overvalued. Now there's some additional research that says that bear markets and drawdowns tend to end when the underlying S&P hits 16 as a valuation. If you believe that, we're still overvalued because we're at like 1920. Um, Sometimes it overcorrects, but 16 is kind of the number. Uh, So I would argue that there's still downside in this market. Um, substantial downside. When we hit bottom though, is anyone's guess. So I don't try to figure it out. I just say, I'm going to look for opportunities to buy when the market starts to sell off. Um, And that is my main focus um, when it comes to equities is, you know, I don't necessarily invest in individual securities, although my firm does have an internal um, hedge fund where we do. Um, But, I want to buy stocks when they're cheap. And so I'm looking for opportunities. One of the places that was a good place to be adding to in the last month or two has been small caps because they did actually hit those numbers. Um, and so, and they've started to actually do quite well. Uh, so these are just things you have to consider. There's technical factors, whatever. I look at it as like the rule of 20. Are we overvalued? Are we above 16? Those two things are both true. Do we have a number of factors that are going to make it hard for me to envision us getting to 16 or under 20 anytime soon? Yes, I think the market still has to go down. And um, I think that that's inevitably what's going to happen. Well, and it's a tough market for people because, you know, we've had several, I mean, certainly we have almost annually, we have a, a period where the market draws down, you know, 10%. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stock market, at least. Um, we hadn't, though, in a long, long time. I remember a year ago. Yeah, since really, really since, well, I mean, we had the, the COVID. We had the COVID drawdown. The COVID month, we didn't month have of March a correction were, after that for almost two years. And normally you do have a 5 to 10% correction uh, that occurs, you know, once a year. And we but didn't it's have un- that. It's been typically unusual, I guess, that we would have equities and uh, bonds correcting at the same time, or at least, you know, the high credit quality bonds correcting at the same time, which, you know, which you kind of hinted out at the beginning of the, of the podcast. And I think that, you know, if you've got a hundred percent long port- portfolio or predominantly long portfolio, I mean, you're, you, you know what you're getting into, you know, what the, the volatility is going to be. It's going to, you know, you're playing for long-term growth, but you're, you're understanding that there's going to be volatility. I, I think when you're using that fixed income as your hedge against your equities and the hedge doesn't hedge, uh, you know, that's, that's a, that's a difficult period for people. And I think they're working through that and starting to think, well, is, 
Is this an anomaly? Is this... It's not unprecedented. It's not. If you look at late 90s, uh, it happened. Um, Right going into the financial crisis, it happened. It was shorter stints. And because interest rates were never um, trending upwards, or there was no risk of them trending upwards at the time, uh, it didn't persist very long. But they, this is not something that never happens. Uh, the problem is that it's hard to determine when the relationship will correct back to its normal, um, to the normal way they behave. Uh, because we are in an environment that I would argue the greater majority of people in this business have not been exposed to, which is a rising rate environment. There has not been a rising rate environment since the 70s. Right. And so most people have no experience in a rising rate environment and uh, and a rising rate environment is bad for bonds. It's not always bad for stocks, but it is always bad for bonds. Well, I think that's a great way to end it. That uh, you, you couldn't say it any better. So, Shana, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoy the conference there in uh, Florida. Thank you for taking the time uh, uh, to join us on the pod and look forward to catching up with you soon. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And that's going to do it for our podcast with Shana Orksik-Sissel. I hope you enjoyed the discussion on alternative investments and how they might uh, fit into an overall portfolio, how the how to differentiate between different types of alternative investments, what what kind of due diligence goes into that space, et cetera. So I think Shana did a really good job of presenting what can be a difficult topic to uh, to discuss in a short uh, time period. If you have some more questions about alternative investments or how they might fit into your portfolio, please give us a please give us a shout. We'd be happy to uh, you know answer those uh, unique questions that you have. Uh, once again, thanks for uh, engaging with us. If you'd like to know a little bit or learn a little bit more about Shana, uh, you can actually go to her personal website. She also has a link tree that does a really good job of cataloging all of her appearances and uh, written content, etc. You can also catch her on CNBC Overtime. You can catch her throughout the day on Bloomberg and occasionally on the Fox Business Network. Um, again, we'd like to thank you so much for engaging with us and remind you, you can follow us and subscribe to us on any of the major podcast platforms, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, what have you. Uh, if you have a chance to subscribe and to rate and review the podcast, that'd be super helpful to us and uh, we would really appreciate it. But most of all, thanks for uh, engaging and listening with us because we can only do our best work when you are here to listen. Thank you.